0: Welcome to The Last Supper, your weekly podcast about art in Asia. I'm your host, Oskar Renhuis. Every weekend, I sit down and release an episode bringing new perspectives and engaging dialogues with emerging and established artists, galleries, curators, and collectors in Asia. Learn more about art in Asia with Christie's Education in Person and virtual art courses, gallery visits, and webinars. Visit Christie's Education website and enter all in capital letters LastSupper15 to enjoy a 15% discount. The website link and discount code for Christie's Education can also be found in the description of this podcast. During today's conversation with Taiwanese-based artist Wen Chuen, we discussed the roles of paper as a social movement and as a tool for activism, the challenge of normalization, how a new generation appears to have a disembodied experience about the current affairs in Taiwan, and we addressed a work called the International Suicide Award. Hello, Wen Xuan, Welcome to The Last Supper. How are you today?
1: I'm doing good.
0: Excellent. So before we begin, tell me where you are calling from.
1: I'm in Taichung. Taichung is uh, the middle of Taiwan in the uh, western coast.
0: Of course, we're going to talk about your work today. But first, can you speak more about yourself?
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm a Taiwanese artist and my work primarily centered on historical narrative the political tensions it generates and the aftermath we witness. And I utilize diverse platforms, including writing, publishing, and performing to address this complex subject. And also, apart from making art, I also write. So last year, I self-published a book titled "Exports on Paper Samplings of Publishing Practices from the Global South. And uh, this is a compilation of interviews I conducted with publishing practitioners from different backgrounds between 2018 and, and all the way till 2020.
0: Congratulations with your publication. I'm curious what your motivation was to write this book.
1: Okay, yeah. Because like if I started the whole story, Basically, I love literature or story much earlier than art. So, uh, literature is my mentor and everything. So, but as everyone knows, we are out now in an era of digital equipment and everything is now going virtual. So, everyone working in publishing field are discussing about. Uh, like paper will disappear and newspaper magazine will disappear. So I'm very curious about that. The first question I want to raise is that whether it is true that we are going to a world that there will not be paper anymore. So no one really needs this materiality of paper and printing things. And so I started this research project and I first went to Latino America. So I traveled to Brazil, Peru, and Mexico to interview with several uh, practitioners coming from backgrounds like there are designers, there are independent libraries, and also artists, art historians, and uh, people uh, working in NGOs and so on. So they, I will ask them about their practices and their diagnosis about the social context they are now facing and why they use certain kind of public publication to help them to face the whole issue. And so like this is the first part of my research journey. I went to Latin America. And then from 2019 till 20, I traveled to uh, Southeast Asia, including Singapore, Malaysia, and then Thailand, also Indonesia. And I tried to travel to different kind of cities in order to get to know the more subtle problems they face. So like after the whole journey, actually like different people tell me different kind of reasons they still need paper. Like some of them is like because uh, they are doing some more like an underground social movement. So they have to remain autonomous. And they have to uh, avoid the government from knowing who they are. So paper is a more safer mediums or platform for them to do actions, rather than like, for example, like maybe like you right are now in Hong Kong. Maybe it like for you, it would be very easy to imagine that if you use the internet as a main platform, it is much easier to to be. Followed up by the government or other part of the party, so like after the whole journey, I decided to publish one book. So this is the compilation of the whole interview. Because I don't want to have one like a single publisher to control every delivery thing. Because I want to have the articles and the images that I taken to be more free of use. So I'm afraid that if there are one publisher getting in, then the copyright issue would be very complicated. So I decided to publish on my own. But like very lucky, like, like just after, like, that's what then one year of the publishing. In the beginning of this year, I traveled to Seoul in South Korea to ask one independent bookshop and also one independent publisher, uh, which is called uh, Mediaverse and the Book Society. And I asked them whether it's possible to sell this book there. And then the uh, owner, Lim, he took the book and then, Afterwards, he decided to translate it in Korean. So now, like in September, this book will publish again, and in Korean and English version. So this is like the general background of this uh, publication.
0: That's quite an achievement to have your book in three different languages.
1: Yeah. So like, I think like for me, like this is something that I never imagined about because I just think that. It might be because uh, in the book, there are those uh, case studies from those countries that I mentioned. But there are also several uh, case studies from Taiwan. So initially, I just want to have those case studies or those practitioners who might have the same interests, but they don't have the opportunity to really exchange their methods. So I just want, initially, I just want this book to become that kind of platform for them to exchange their thoughts and not thoughts. And that's it. But like, uh, it seems there might be more and more uh, publishing practitioners who might be interested in those case studies.
0: What can you say about the findings you uncovered when you were talking with the participants?
1: apart from my own artistic research and because like this is more like a parallel to my like artist role but at the same time I think my focus on historical narrative there's my interest on in that actually reflect a lot upon what kind of cases that I want to choose or interview. So basically in the book, there are eighteen case studies in general, and then most of them have a certain way of we can say like they try to use publishing practice as a kind of political practice. Uh, for example, there are some also like after those interviews, I try to organize those interviews into three categories. First one is samizdat, also this is Russian term to somehow we can. I'll translate into self publishing, but some is more like publishing under a certain very high pressure regime. So, like this is like a specific term to name that kind of, for example, uh, those uh, underground publication under Stalin regime. And so, this is the first category. And the second one is manifesto, and the third one is archive. So in different kind of category, I saw them as kind of drawers. So like people could put different kind of experience and different kind of practice into different kind of drawers. And like what I found interesting is that because I, when I work with one old historian in Taiwan and whose name is Ming or Suben, Suban is more like when I pronounce his name in, like, English alphabet. So Suman is a very old historian. He was born in 1908 and passed away in 2019. So at the time, he was, like, 103 years old. And when I worked with him, and I understand that when he was fled to Japan because, like, he tried to kill Chiang Kai-shek in the 1950s. So then he was targeted by the government. So he had no way to flee abroad. So when he was in Japan, but he tried to continue the protest and he will use the self-published pamphlets or we can like categorize it under the term of Samizda. So he used that kind of platform in order to continue the Indian, I mean Taiwan like Indian protest even though he was abroad and he also print a lot of this kind of pamphlet and he mailed this pamphlet to Europe and to Brazil so it seems like this kind of medium become another virtual platform of course like it is like based on materiality but it also created certain kind of virtual platform that different kind of people or possible members could join in. So this is uh, the first impression of me, like when I think of paper and I try to sense how the revolution of paper was in parallel with the revolution of the human rights, let's say like this. And of course, like. Taiwan has a long, long-term colonial history. So it becomes prototype of how writing, self-polishing, and the creating of an autonomous nation could somehow intertwine together. And then with this kind of impression in mind, uh, when I try to select some uh, certain interview from abroad, I will try to focus on those practitioners that i could somehow feel that they didn't really just use paper as a kind of very nostalgia thing but they see paper is another way to conquer the this kind of uh, digital dominated world so but they somehow use it very with a very careful sense for example like a when I interviewed with one practitioner, she was based in Brazil, but at that time she did research trip to the US and Mexico border. So I fly there to interview her. She is PhD in art and then she is also feminist activist. So when I interview with her, like she introduced me to an archive from his university. So his archive has a very rich documentation about the labor movement in Brazil in 1910 and all the way to 1930s, I think. But this kind of archive is only digitized in the university. So for her, he tried to reuse and reinterpret those Archive mostly in Portuguese to translate it into Spanish because he wanted to make the archive to be more convenient to read to uh, most of the Latin America readers. So he re-edited them and translated them and to find form which is more like a newspaper to somehow put those one hundred years ago history to the present and this case for me is a very interesting one because it's not only about printing something on newspaper but actually is collaboration between when we discuss about digitalization of archive in museum or other institution and how it can make those archive accessible to the for the public and this artist for me she created a very Interesting way, and this is not only appear on, um, for example, that kind of very academic work, but it can really be used to other activists. For example, like this is a very interesting case study for me, like how a paper is not only a nostalgia one, but actually is a clever play between digitalized material and uh, urge to make it public, and make it public become a very important way to remind us to return back to the very basic meaning of publication, which means to make it public to the reader. And this is like one of the case that I'd like to share to you.
0: What I understand from you is that paper has been a integral part of the social movements throughout history. Can you speak more about how the role of paper has evolved in terms of activism and social change?
1: Like for my like very restricted understanding of this issue, because of course, like if we discuss about paper, it's like or like printing, it's a long, long, long history. And I just uh, encounter this issue within like this, like under this research project, and within this that long years, but. One thing that might change is that I really don't know like whether I could say that Taiwan is a country that people really love to read. Because like even though when I interviewed one independent uh, bookshop in Singapore, in that bookshop they had a lot of uh, literature and other theory books coming from Taiwan. And so it seems that like Taiwan is an important country to export the kind of, at least like traditional Chinese or Chinese language uh, publication. But like in Taiwan, we still heard a lot that people say that like, no one loves to read anymore or like Instagram shorts and X and other kind of social platform makes younger people, they are reading habitat change a lot because of the social media. Self-publishing can be re-examined from another way. Like There are two ways to examine publishing or self-publishing. One way is through the eyes of a reader and another way is through the eyes of the bookmaker or writer or like cartoonist, whatever it is, because it seems like in recent year, there are more and more people in Taiwan who love to create teams, like no matter it's photo scene, cartoon teams, or whatever teams, like or artist book. Basically, like in university, there are more and more players about artist book, and also there is one artist book archive center which is created by another friend of mine. And so it seems there is a demand of book, especially book in different kind of form. But like somehow, if I compare, like this kind of self-publishing boom, to let's say fifty years ago when Taiwan is still under martial law period of time, and people cannot go on the street to protest, so paper or self published Magazine and books is the only way to express their idea. Like I think, like of course, at that time they won't really call it as teen or a self-publishing thing like that. But it seems there is a very interesting comparison between these two kind of womb and nineteen those kind of publication from nineteen sixties. Let's say sixties the 80s, actually they become so strong that they somehow help to change the whole political scenery. And then like in nineteen eighteen seven, is the year when the martial law is uh, lifted. But like these two boom seems like the urge is a little bit similar. Like people want to show to the public that they want to say something or they want to try to persuade the readers that they are a certain kind of their pattern that matters. But I think like their interest is diverse. Their interest is very, very different. They're born from the sixties till eighties in Taiwan very much focused on politics. And then like uh, in recent years the kind of won they focus more and more on very fragmented uh, life story of individual to be honest at first i really think it's pity if you just use this kind of uh, very easy diy technique to express one's own story then like how about the broader environment but like when i interview another people in peru in lima and the girl is designer and she is also a teen collector and also researcher. So when I asked her about this kind of dilemma that I faced in Taiwan about the teen boom, and she told me that because also in 1960s and 70s, there are a lot of uh, underground punk movement in Lima. And at the time, there is also a very strong a group of people who coming from the far leftist group. So there is a very great tension between the government and the public. Actually, like the teen is a punk teen. And then like inside of that, it's more like a diary thing. So people will just say that, oh, I go on the street to that concert, and I saw a car, and under the car, I it seems like I kicked on something. Far away, I heard like it seems like there something bombing something like that. And for her, for this girl, her name, Romanes. <laughs> I forgot her name. <laughs> her name is Romanes. So I, when I asked her about that, she told me that even though at that time, maybe the reader will see those teen contents as very boring and very too normal that nobody wants to read, but like after 40, 50 years later, when the whole social context is different, then that kind of single personal narrative becomes very important as a witness of the whole society. So uh, she told me that nowadays when I look at those things in Taiwan, I would think that those are so, so personal story so cute, everything looks so beautiful, and there's nothing harmful. But like she reminded me that if 20, 30 years later, the social context change, if we don't have that kind of freedom of speech anymore, then this kind of thing will become another important archive for the future Taiwanese people to understand what was before and what we face now. And I think this reminding for me is very touching because, as you know, like nowadays Taiwan is in a very unstable status, especially with the relationship between the U.S. and the mainland China. So I think somehow, uh, the interview with her bring me to another kind of understanding to this Xinbum like scenery. Mm-hmm.
0: Have a small favor to ask that will make a big impact the last supper is offered to you at zero cost and if you like this show about art in asia give this podcast a star rating or subscribe to this podcast channel many thanks and let's continue taiwan has always had a complicated relationship with its neighboring places and especially in the last few years it appears that this has become more prominent at least according to the media news that i'm exposed to I, of course, do take the news with a grain of salt. However, I'd like to hear from you in Taiwan what your experience is, whether the narrative has shifted, or is it a continuous issue that is normalized and has become a normal part of daily life?
1: I think it's continually, as you say. And we could say that this kind of continuous status can be traced back to all the way to the 17th century. So when the Dutch and Spanish like colonized Taiwan, like but at a time of course it's just partly, and then the Qing Dynasty also from mainland China, and then there comes a Japanese Empire from 1895 all the way to like till the end of World War Two, and then it's Chiang Kai Shek like when they lose the lost the Chinese civil war and retreat to Taiwan. And then I think, actually, I won't really say that like, if we look back to the Taiwanese history, I won't really say that now is the worst period of time. But it seems like, I don't know whether you have this kind of saying, like in Taiwan, we have a kind of saying called Un zhu qin wa. it's like you are cooking frogs in warm water. <laughs> like it seems like a uh, little frog will seem like, hmm, that it's okay, it's just like a normal temperature. But the when the water keeps boiling and then it seems it will be very difficult for the frog to notice what's going on. So it will make it very hard for it to find a proper time point to escape from the pot, something like that. And for me, nowadays Taiwan seems to under this kind of situation i still remember that when a friend of mine who comes from germany comes to taiwan for a exchange program and like one day because like we always saw those kind of news that Men in china the ccp government sent another vessel or airplane to touch upon our border or something like that so this kind of news happen so much that most of the Taiwanese sometimes like get so used to it so don't really pay attention to it anymore. But that a uh, German friend of mine he would be very anxious about that and why he feels so anxious is that it's not only because of the possible attack but also because of why is that like tell you Taiwanese people don't really feel afraid of this. So I think like this become a kind of new normal of the whole Chinese society. Because like a lot of tourists who come to Taiwan will feel that it seems like this place, like people living here feel so at ease and feel so peaceful. And then I think somehow we might not really see it as a kind of a compliment because It is concrete proof that when a country or a group of people undergoing a long, long time of pressure and a long time of coloniality, then those people will forget what does it mean to feel autonomous. And then to urge for that becomes more like, now in Taiwan, it it makes me feel like the independence of Taiwan becomes token to be played from different kind of party. So those politicians not really, for me, somehow, not really mean that. I don't know whether I explained it clearly, but like, this is how I feel about the current situation in Taiwan when I look back to the Taiwanese history. I
0: think what you were alluding to and made a reference to is the notion of boiling frog syndrome.
1: Yeah, it's like that. And... Like sometimes, of course, like uh when like being an artist, I try to remind myself to take step back, try to look at the more broader picture of the whole situation, but like sometimes when like a couple of years ago, when I really go on the street to protest, and then when I saw the those kind of protests happening in Hong Kong and the and the aftermath of those protests. I like I think like a lot of people, Taiwanese young people, will feel a little bit like who really pay who really cautious about the future of Taiwan will feel a kind of trauma because of that. Because like at the time when all oh, there's a kind of saying that especially when the the umbrella protests happening on Facebook and other social media, a lot of people will post and report a sentence which like which is posted. I think at first it's Hong Kong people like who say that like we only display once something like that so like this is the second time we can show this to you like you Taiwanese, like who share a kind of like similar political background of us a lot of people some way. But for another young generation who once experienced, how will the government treat you when you become the enemy of a nation? This kind of very bodily experience, actually, is very important for people to know, especially in the future generation, because I think... For example, like when I, because I uh, sometimes I also teach at junior high, high school, but not in school, but for a kind of collaboration between different institutions. So they will invite artists to take part in the high school's classes in order to teach the student how to turn white terror period time stories or narratives into a more creative way of saying something like that and when i encounter those younger generation who is younger than 20 years old and i think like for them like everything is just a kind of information so there's no really bodily experience about history and this is something that i think after knowing that part I think the important thing for people to go on the street is not really to be successful about uh, their target, but also try to put our body in the places and to feel something or to learn something that comes earlier than your mind or brain. So I think in terms of that, protest and history, historical narrative, when those two terms come together it somehow strikes me in a very weird way and like in this weird way if i put in a title that could be performativity but like in this sense performativity is nothing about that kind in theatrical space in a narrow sense but in public space or in the social space Uh, even in a historical space and like how the past and the future could be examined at one time point or in one uh, platform.
0: Besides your literature work, another project that caught my attention was the one you made in 2018, which is called the International Suicide Award. Of course, the title itself is somewhat provocative. So tell me what this work was about.
1: Okay, so uh, actually that one is a project that I finished like four years uh, after the Sunflower Movement. So actually the Sunflower Movement, like, I'm not that kind of people who really jump in the protest scenery. I'm always like a bylooker to see what's going on and try to extract myself a little bit far away from the bot. And like the International Suicide Award, the reason why I did this project is because at that time I have another project a collaboration with foundation called Nailong Zhen Foundation. And Nailong is another activist who is very important to Taiwanese history. And he is journalist, a writer, and a revolutionary as well. In 1989, he burned himself to death in his office. Actually, it is already like the martial law is already lifted up two years after the lifting of uh, the martial law but still like the whole monopoly of the government is still very strict and then uh, because the Nailong Gen these people who dedicated himself to the independence of Taiwan and in his magazine he urged for the 100 percent of the freedom of speech. So this two uh, value, totally against the KMT government. So at the end, they asked them to go on the court, but he refused to do it because he thinks that the freedom of speech is nothing that you have to defend on the court. So at the end, he locked himself in his office and do the self-immolation. And Actually, this is case that when Taiwanese... Students grown up, they will get to know. But the thing that I didn't know is that when I look into his diary when he was once caught in prison, and when I look into his diary and his notes, and it seems that the self-immolation is not a very instant choice of his life. Now because I, I read in one of his notes that he tried to ask himself, uh, how can people understand or how can people feel painful? Because he when he was in university, he studied philosophy. So I think a lot of his notes, he write it in a way of like self uh, Q&A, that kind of format. So he asked, him, he asked himself, like, how can people really understand what is, like, what is pain, or how can make me peop, uh, make people feel painful? And the second line of that, he tried to decipher the relationship between painful, this kind of bodily experience, with uh, visuality. So it seems like a couple of years. Before like his death, he already think about this kind of things, and actually, like this part make me feel as I mentioned about the performativity, this term. Like, isn't like for him, this kind of self immolation is another way to build up theatrical moment in the whole society that not only people of his side, but also people as his enemy, that us say, have to look at his body and look at this kind of painful situation created by the colonial past of Taiwan. And so this is a most important thing, and this is the most important reason that triggered me to do this project. So in this project, it turned out to be like I tried to create space inside the art museum so it's a little bit like a um, kind of mise en so i place a place within a space and a narrative within a narrative and a theater within a theater so in the end when people get into this exhibition space people will see the whole space as a kind of judging room so there is a world going on and in this judgment, there are three final proposals happening here. So apart from the display, I also have workshop like performative workshop in parallel to the exhibition. So I dressed myself as a worker who worked in this sociotechnic foundation, and I invited audience to part in as the judges to select which one is the best proposal of the political suicide. So in that three desk or the three proposals, there are three different kinds of criteria. The first one is the, that kind of suicide of spiritual beliefs. And the second one is that actually those case studies appear on the second deck. they are killers. They are not really people who commit suicide. But this cases appear as if the whole society met something, and then the people use the way of homicide in order to commit suicide. So there is a twist between suicide and homicide. And the third one is focused on life conditions after the collapse of utopian socialism. So, uh, because not only like after the fall of Berlin, well, there are a lot of generals who, who once worked under the East Germany commit suicide, like, something like that. So in the third desk, there are this kind of case study. So the whole project, I want to focus on the very complex idea of suicide in order to radiate the issue of how one is individual, not as organization or a group of people, how one use their own body to face the abstract flow of the whole historical time. So this is the of the reason why I want to make this and yeah, of course, when I activated in the art museum, there are some... Because like the first time I activated in Moka, in, uh, in Zhongshan Zhang in Taipei, and the second time I activated in uh, Taipei Fire Museum. And people who work in the museum told me that there are some parents who called them to say, like somehow scolded them because they think that in a public space like our museum, you cannot put suicide as a topic to the public. Like it will be very harmful to their kids, something like that. So it also made me think that why we are so afraid about this term. Everyone has beloved fellow or beloved like uh, people close to them. Once commit suicide or even like one themselves might have the attempt or to commit suicide this time is so frequently happened to us or appear to the whole society but why are we are so afraid of that and if we don't really look into this time then it will become a very thin and very useless cover to the complexity of human being.
0: You mentioned you disguised yourself as a worker as well and when audience engaged in these free fictional narratives, what other responses did you receive?
1: Yeah, I think like interestingly is that because in that workshop I will I hand out some form to those participants and there are four different kind of criteria for the people to give some scores to that project. And those criteria is that I steal those criteria from the sponsorship, the kind of foundation, the application form. So there are the effectiveness, something like that. And like, so the procedure is like that. Like, so I will introduce the whole game rule to them. So I will tell them about what is this award about and how could uh, people apply for it and what's the criteria about that. And then I will introduce those three proposal in the final list, one by one, to them. And surprisingly, those participants really paid attention to every detail. For example, like us in the first act, which is about the political suicide, and in a narrow sense, for example, Nai Long case, or that kind of Buddhist, those among committing suicide in Thailand, something like that, and I also provided some forms, some statistics about which year how many people die because of political suicide, and those participants really pay attention to that, because I think like when people only see suicide is a very evil term, then they will go away like without asking why you have to use this term as another way to have conversation with the public. But when people get into the exhibition space, when people really dive into the material that I provide, somehow they get to know that actually this is nothing about any panel or Exciting, like killing things. Most of the numbers and most of the image, most of the archive that I use is about political cinema in different kind of social contexts. When the participants give score of each desk, they try to understand the social context at the same time. So I remember that some of the participants. Uh, when they are examining some material that I provide, at the same time, they will take out their phone in order to look for other information about that. So I think this for me is quite surprising. When I use a kind of game rule, let say it, of course, like suicide is nothing about game, but like the whole space is more like place when people can get inside and feel like he or she is a jury rather than a normal people who examine what is right and wrong about suicide, then they will have a totally different kind of view to see those case studies. Because, uh, for example, Nairong this case in Taiwan, even in nowadays, it's still, for example, my parents will see this kind of self immolation as a very bad case study for younger generation. so people should then see that and should not know this kind of thing. But when people have another kind of cover, it seems like they will have different kind of things to understand what's going on. So after this piece, I have two or more installation. I use this kind of space Within space, technique in order to create a more complicated, but at the same time, the audience can have totally different kind of undercover to fill the archive. So I use other kind of space. This one is more like a judging room, and another kind is a editorial office or something like that. So this is something that I also learned from the workshop from the participants in order to continue this kind of putting one space, reading the exhibition, the normal exhibition space, this kind of technique.
0: Do you feel that people in Taiwan have opened up in terms of talking about the subject of suicide a little bit more, especially that mental health has been a prominent topic since COVID?
1: I think it's still... But because I don't have any other countries to compare, because I think this kind of issue, when I look up on the internet, like, for example, if I type like suicide, or like, men in China, suicide, Japan, I think there will be a lot of grey zone that I won't really get to know. Like, only if I could live there, then I can understand how people react to that. So I don't have any comparison, so it's hard to say. But in Taiwan, I think, like, to feel that when people are uh, discussed about depression, it seems like uh, there are more and people, and there are more and more people who feel open to that kind of issue. But suicide, I think, it seems like we don't get to that point yet. But I hope, like, step by step, yeah.
0: What else do you want people to know about your work?
1: Maybe I'd like to point out a little bit about the project that I did about the uh, Xie Hong, the one of the female founder of Taiwanese Communist Party. I think that one is also quite crucial for my artistic practice. Actually, it's like the time is a little bit overlap. there. Uh, after International Suicide Award that part, and the same time I also conduct the compendium of autobiography. So in this project there are three pieces coming together. One is someone's autobiography, someone's diary, and then the third one is the compendium of autobiographies. So in those three projects I use different kinds of uh, mediums, for example, audio guide and publishing and novel, something like that. And the uh, uh, main character or the main uh, research resource of the project is very important, but very difficult to discuss female figure in Taiwanese history, whose name is Xie Hong And she was uh, one of the co-founder of Taiwanese Communist Party. And Taiwanese Communist Party is different from Chinese Communist Party. At that time, it was founded in 1928. And shortly after a couple of years, it was banned by the Japanese government in 1931. And at that time, because under the one country, one Communist Party, under this title, so actually the full title of Taiwanese Communist Party is Japanese Communist Party, Taiwanese National Branch. So basically, Taiwanese Communist Party was under leadership of the Japanese Communist Party. And because Xie Xie Hong, this female figure, she was born in Zhanghua. And I was born in Zhanghua as well. It's also in the western coast of Taiwan and in the middle of this island. And she was born in a very poor family and she was illiterate. And she was sold uh, two or three people, different kind of people in order to get money because her family was too poor. And then after 1925, she had the chance to travel to Japan. And in there, she witnessed the one social movement. So like afterwards, this kind of leftist idea was generated in her mind. And he later went to Shanghai and helped to found the Taiwanese Communist Party. And the reason why I think this figure is interesting is that because there was huge inequality between male and female in Taiwanese society. I think in nowadays the inequality is still happened but just in different kind of form. And at that time like when I look into different kind of biographies about her, I could see that for example like those documents coming from a Japanese government or coming from the police, they will describe this woman as a very beautiful one and so attractive so that a lot of male activists were seduced by her in order to commit something. So this is a typical saying from the government's documents. But for those documents coming from the leftists, they are because in Taiwanese Communist Party, at one point, it split into two groups. One group of people who believe in the leadership of Chinese Communist Party and another group of people who trusted in the leadership of Japanese Communist Party. And Xie Hong belonged to the latter one. And because of that, the Taiwanese Communist Party split into two. And then, like, for those uh, leftists who believe in the leadership of Chinese Communist Party and who targeted Xie Hong, they were so, uh, this female figure as too, way too mighty and too strong. So, like, somehow, like, female, like, the status of being female become both positive way and a negative way. When I look into more and more about the biographies about her, I feel like the figure of Xie Xie Hong become more and more vague. But at the same time, those who write Xie Xie Hong become more and more clear because they somehow, when they write Xie Xie Hong, they also show their intention and their political status. And so, like, in this project, I use this figure. I don't want to say Xie Xu Hong is, like, the most important figure that we have to know throughout the Taiwanese history, but because this female figure is a certain prototype to understand the complexity of being in long-lasting colonial history in Taiwan. Yeah, this is, like, the last project I'd like to share.
0: Before we delve into the last question of today, I want to highlight that your work will be at TIVA in Taipei in Taiwan as well, which opened last November of this year and runs until the first quarter of next year, two twenty four. And I will post the details of TIVA in this podcast as well. So let's wrap up today's episode with my final question. If you were to have your last supper, who would you invite and what would you discuss and talk about at your final meal?
1: Wow. Can I invite someone already passed away? (laughs) Then, like, I really want to have a chance to talk with George Luis Borges in Argentina, as Argentinian novelist. And then, like, uh, his work. Actually, I learned a lot and I think how I imagine. The world and the world really affected a lot from him. So, if I had a chance, I'd like to have my last supper with him, George Louis Walker. And maybe we could have, I think I would like to invite him to come to Taiwan to have like deep fried dishes. Like, we have, we call it 热炒店。where so you could have hot pot, where you could have seafood and some fried vegetables in there with beer. And then we could freely discuss about novel literature and some stories that he wanted to write, but he didn't have the chance to do that.
0: Many thanks, Wen Xuen, for joining today's podcast of The Last Supper.
1: Thank you very much
0: for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Last Supper with Taiwanese-based artist Chang Won Chuen. If you like this show about art in Asia, you can support us by giving this episode a star rating and subscribing to this podcast. If you have any questions, suggestions, or wish to participate in this podcast, you can contact me on oscar at thelastsopper.asia. You can visit my website www.thelastsopper.asia as well, or contact me direct on Instagram at thelastsopper.asia.